I realize that many of you have a great fidelity to Mayorga coffee <laughs> and their Georgia Avenue coffee shop. I certainly have drank many cups of their rich brew in the year and a half that I've served as your interim leader. But before there was Mayorga, and before there was Starbucks, there was Pete's. Pete's Coffee and Tea was founded by Alfred Pete in Berkeley in 1966. Four years later, Starbucks was founded by three friends who were familiar with Pete's. During Starbucks' first year, their coffee beans were purchased from Pete's. Initially, Starbucks only sold beans and high-end coffee equipment. Twelve years later, Howard Schultz joined the Starbucks team. He argued that Starbucks should start selling coffee beverages, not just the beans. His partners disagreed, so Schultz started his own chain. Two years later, the original three owners sold the small, small Seattle chain to Schultz, who opened stores outside Seattle the same year. Within five years, Starbucks had 165 stores. Today, Starbucks has more than 15,000 stores worldwide. It added 1,700 just in the last year. It's more than three a day. Despite much success, Starbucks is having problems. Its stock has dropped more than 40% in value during the past year. It is facing stiff competition from Dunkin' Donuts in the tests. Now McDonald's is planning to install espresso machines and offer lattes. And there are many good local coffee brewers like Mayorga who create the atmosphere that once existed at Starbucks but has been lost in its rapid-paced global expansion. There's a lot to be said for a good coffee shop. It affords an opportunity for friends to get together and talk in a way that once was limited only to neighborhood bars. And coffee shops are a great venue for business meetings. Perhaps we should designate a night, say the second Wednesday of the month, and gather at Mayorga for an evening of coffee, conversation, and controversy. What do you think? Should we try it? Seriously, it would be a great way to explore topics of interest to the overall West community. Just imagine the riveting conversation that would have occurred last Wednesday following the New Hampshire primary. Why were the final polls predicting an Obama win so far off the mark? What role did Clinton's display of uncharacteristic emotion play in the final outcome? What about the gender gap? Will women continue to vote in significantly larger numbers for Clinton than for Obama? Will Obama or Clinton benefit more when Edwards drops out of the race? And then there are the questions about the Republicans. Will Giuliani's late start strategy prove disastrous to his campaign? Will Fred Thompson awaken? <laughs> and what of McCain? Huckabee, and Romney. Finally, would a Bloomberg candidacy hurt the Democrats or Republicans more? 
or perhaps conversation would turn to West-related topics. Of course, the topic of dual membership would undoubtedly rise. Another might be the issue of the language used here at West. For those not subscribed to the West Exchange, and that's a majority of you, the West Exchange is an online discussion forum for the West community. And there has been recently been an email discussion about language. It began toward the end of December with a thoughtful posting by Bob Wentworth. Over the course of the next two weeks, various folks chimed into the discussion and offered various alternatives to our Adler-rooted terminology. For instance, instead of platform, as in I'm going to platform today, folks suggested Sunday meetings, Sunday morning service, elicitation service, (laughs) cultivation service, or just plain meeting or service. Instead of platform address, suggestions included talk, lesson, elicitation, cultivation, someone keeps trying, cultivation, inspirational talk, that depends on the week, I suppose, topical address, meeting subject, lecture, exploration of theme, and even sermon, the preferred term used in both synagogues and in churches, but not here at West. Alternatives to the use of leader to describe our clergy were also suggested. They included nurturant, (laughs) mentor, director, convener, main man, (laughs) main woman, main person, and big cheese. I kid you not, but the latter was offered in jest by several members, I hope. (laughs) It was an interesting exchange, even if nothing was resolved. But it helped my thinking for today's address. Whether my talk, lesson, sermon, or lecture cultivates, inspires, or merely informs will depend upon your response later in our meeting service or platform. After a few weeks of email addresses, exchanges, I suggested it was time to bring the discussion to an end. I did so because a listserv conversation really isn't a substitute for thoughtful work by a committee charged with taking a bigger picture into account. It seemed to me that our conversation was similar to committee writing the lyrics to a song without knowing either the melody or even the genre of the song first. (laughs) Or to use another example, it's similar to a presidential candidate focusing on getting out the vote before determining the campaign's message first. Or focusing on the details of governance and not conveying the hope that Americans desperately seek. Or Starbucks rushing to open 40,000 stores worldwide while forgetting their vision for coffee shops that made customers come and linger in the first place. Today, people can buy good coffee for much less elsewhere. Starbucks became Starbucks because they served good coffee in an inviting environment. If Starbucks is to recover, it needs to rediscover the spirit of hospitality that its customers found so inviting.
And that is essentially what Wes is currently engaged in doing. The identity groups that Mary and I are leading are an attempt to shed light on the evolving spirit of Wes. During the past three months, more than 50 West members have engaged in conversation about our mission, the hope we offer our members and the broader community, whether it's desirable to be theologically pluralistic, the place of mystery and awe in our lives and at West, how our lives are changed by being part of the West community, and whether West as a congregation should be more involved in matters of public policy. We still have another month of meetings. Afterward, Mary and I will share our conclusions with you. In holding these conversations, Mary and I are seeking to hear the tune being hummed by the majority of current West community members so that the lyrics that we write collectively will authentically match the music. For example, are the members of West seeking more spirituality on Sunday mornings and in their lives, or do they prefer a secular experience on Sunday mornings? And whether we are more spiritual or secular, how reverent do we wish to be together? How do we understand the displayed expression where people meet to seek the highest as holy ground? Does this expression refer to this physical space as holy ground? Or does it mean the experience of people meeting and together seeking the highest is holy ground? I believe it means the latter. What is holy or sacred is the relationship among people, not the space where we gather, however inviting it will soon be. But in what spirit do we approach each other? Do we come together as a community with a sense of awe and deep appreciation for each other and for this rare opportunity to create holy ground? Or do we gather as individuals to have our own individual needs to be inspired or challenged or educated met? How do you approach this time together on Sunday mornings? Do you use the time before the service as a time for quiet centering, catching up with your friends, or do you tend to arrive 15 minutes into the service? How holy is this time and space that enables us to connect and reconnect with each other? These questions began arising within Unitarian Universalism about a decade ago. They did so because newer members wanted a more spiritual, less secular experience in our congregations. These newer members were running towards something deeper in their lives rather than running away from traditional religion, as many who found their way to UU congregations in the 1960s and 70s were. In fleeing from traditional religion, Many confused the finger pointing at the moon with the moon itself. Mostly humanist in theology, these newer members sought the experience of sacredness, the melody, if you will, without the lyrics or creed of traditional religion. 
During the early days of Bill Sinkford's presidency of the UUA, he called for a language of reverence within Unitarian Universalism. In 2003, he addressed this topic in the national magazine of the UUA. Sinkford wrote, quote, What struck me as I reread the principles of our association was that they contain not one piece of traditional religious language, not one single word. And this is a wonderment to me. Our principles serve us well as a covenant, presenting a vision of a more just world on which we agree, and our promise to walk together toward that vision, whatever our theology. But I wonder whether the language of the principles is sufficient to capture our individual searches for truth and meaning. Our resistance to religious language, I believe, helps to account for the struggle that so many of us experience in trying to say who we are as Unitarian Universalists. I'd like to read that last sentence because I think it applies to ethical culturalists as well. Our resistance to religious language helps to account for the struggle that so many of us experience in trying to say who we are. The reaction to the article in the UU World and to earlier newspaper accounts of Bill Sinkford's thinking that had been widely uh, disseminated on the internet led the New York Times to explain that Reverend Sinkford's initiative has, quote, generated more emails, letters, and telephone calls than any other issue in its history. A big statement for a contentious group that has had some huge blow-ups over race, war, and gender issues. Much of the concern arose from a fear that the language of reverence is really an attempt to return to theistic language, or God talk. And many UU congregations, there has been a tension between those advocating increased spirituality and those seeking to maintain the intellectual rationality that so defined Unitarianism during the latter half of the 20th century. I share this background with you today so that you know that Wes, an ethical culture, isn't alone in the struggle for theological identity. Is ethical culture, as practiced here at West, a dynamic, evolving faith? Our Sunday morning experience today is different from what it was 30 or 40 years ago, and it is safe to assume that it will be different in 10 to 20 years. That doesn't make it easier for those who long for the old days. The process of evolution can be quite painful as we cling to that which we have grown accustomed to. Over the course of time, Wes has gradually transformed itself into a theologically more inclusive community, embracing both secular and religious humanists. In doing so, some members have left. Others remain, but they are concerned with the direction that Wes has gone during the past decade. Others remain... I'm sorry, they fear that they are losing their community of hope. They fear, as I have been told, that Wes will become more churchy or synagogue The choice, however, is not whether Wes will become a church or a synagogue. 
because it will never become one in the traditional theological sense. But rather, whether West will continue to evolve so it can better meet the spiritual needs of a new generation of humanists who seek spiritual growth while remaining committed to a non-theist theology. In short, the challenge facing West and other ethical culture societies is how to help its members and future members live more holistic, more spiritually centered lives. Sinkford advanced this conversation by referring to the language of reverence, but I prefer using experience instead, since it better captures the spirit that many newcomers bring with them. They are not seeking the words of reverence, but the feeling or melody of reverence. But how, without reliance upon words or the poetry of metaphor, do we collectively achieve it? What I understand by this experience of reverence is not more God talk, but an increased awareness of something intangible in our midst. It is a call for the acknowledgement that the whole is greater than the sum of its rational part, something that Felix Adver, Adler platformed, might I say, preached. What might this language of reverence sound like? While it is difficult to describe, I suggest it begins with the absence of sound. The language of reverence is an invitation for increased silence in our services. Silence. And not the coughed-filled, squeaky-chaired, coffee-drinking silence that usually occurs when our meditation lasts more than a few moments but a profound silence that allows the mind to catch up with one's ears and the soul to tune into heartfelt emotions that can be found during our services. In Burnt Norton, the poet T.S. Eliot writes, At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor moment, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point. There would be no dance, And there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been. But I cannot say where. And I cannot say how long. For that is to place it in time. The experience of reverence is found at the still point of the turning world. There the dance is. Except for the point the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. I can only say there we have been, but I cannot say where, and I cannot say how long for that is to place it in time. Notice Eliot uses the imagery of movement, the still point of of dance. There is a day, writes Wendell Berry, 
when the road neither comes nor goes, and the way is not a way, but a place. This place that is beyond the way is where the experience of reverence can be found. It is not rational. It cannot be explained. It is intangible. It can only be experienced. The experience of reverence has been described by mystics as awe in the presence of the heartbeat of the universe. Some describe this presence as God, while others describe it as cosmic unity. It is sacred and holy. It can be approached in countless ways through nature, through music and the arts, through spiritual practices, through service to others. The cry for reverence is a cry for discovering the underlying melody of life. What might that be? In this morning's opening words, Wendell Berry suggests an answer in his poem entitled A Homecoming. One faith is bondage. Two are free. In the trust of old love, cultivation shows a dark, graceful wilderness at its heart. Wild in that wilderness, we roam the distances of our faith, safe beyond the bounds of what we know. O love, open, show me my country, take me home. The experience of reverence is an invitation to surrender our individual beliefs, whatever they may be, and join together in a collective journey that roams the distances of our faith. In doing so, we will travel far beyond the bounds of what we already know. In doing so, we will discover a unifying and universalizing truth, the oneness of all things. It is the ethical manifold encompassing all things. In coming to understand the unity of all things, we are compelled to live our lives differently from the mainstream notion of differentiation and duality. What we do to others is not done to others, but to ourselves. In coming to understand the unity of all things, we are sustained on the journey to our spiritual home that is called life. Our ethical culture underpinnings serve as a roadmap for our journey together. In one of my identity groups, a participant shared that Wes is a laboratory for learning how to live. Her remark resonated with everyone in our group. Whatever the motivation that initially brought us to West, here we are in numbers approaching 400 children, youth, and adults. But the recurring question is, how can we invite a deeper sense of spirituality and reverence in our lives, both individually and communally. This isn't an easy question to answer. For far too long in ethical culture, there has been a tendency to practice a theological version of don't ask, don't tell. If one's theological bent was more spiritually inclined. But living in the closet isn't enriching for anyone. The person in the closet or the folks outside who don't benefit from the richness that everyone brings to the table or experiences through the manifold. Too often in the past, humanists have avoided that which make them uncomfortable, emotions, 
ritual, popular music, scriptural readings, and theological language, thereby robbing them and their children of the experience of the bigger picture. To reach reverence, we should be able to use all the ways open to us, not just those that appeal to our own philosophical or theological tastes. We change, we grow, and you never know what might appeal to you if you remain open to your spiritual growth. While we're on this journey of faith together, we aren't necessarily on the same path. We don't have the same expectations. We don't have the same needs. We don't even have the same theological language to communicate with each other. Some of us are atheists. Many are agnostic. Not really sure, but open to the possibilities. Some long to hear the language of reverence in our Sunday morning worship while others aren't sure what the phrase language of reverence means. But they are sure that it doesn't belong in the ethical culture movement. And certainly not during Sunday morning platforms. What is certain is that we are a theologically diverse crowd. In the survey of West members conducted in December of 2005, the Growth and Transformation Task Force found 17% of respondents believing that no God of any kind exists, period. Thank you. While 4% believe that God exists and intervenes in daily events. The majority of West members believe that there is a higher power, which is not a supernatural being that provides a capacity for goodness within us and a spiritual connection while 43% believe that God is a metaphor representing the spiritual ideal, a state of harmonious relationships. 36% believe that the existence or nature of God is unknowable. The vast majority of respondents, 61%, agree that we have an innate capacity for goodness that impels us to find a supreme way of being. The ocean touches many shores, but the tomography of the shorelines varies significantly from place to place. High cliffs, sandy beaches, and rocky shores, not to mention palm trees and redwoods and pines along those shores. Our individual spirits are nurtured and sustained by our different paths. It is this recognition of the validity of our own individual inward journey without denigrating the inward journey of others. That is, the transformational yeast for the individual within West. Our understanding, really understanding, that there are many paths, and no one path is necessarily better than the others, is the strength and hope of our humanistic movement in this increasingly complex but interdependent era. In discovering the experience of reverence, we awaken to life itself. In the mid-80s, a song composed by David Pomeran spoke to this spiritual reawakening. It was sung here at West not long ago. Listen to the lyrics of It's in Every One of Us. It's in every one of us to be wise. Find your heart and open up both your eyes. We can all know everything without ever 
knowing why. It's in every one of us, by and by. It's in every one of us. I just remembered, it's like I've been sleeping for years. I'm not awake as I can be, but my seeing's better. I can see through the tears. I've been realizing that I bought this ticket, but been watching only half the show. But there's scenery and lights and a cast of thousands who all know what I know, and it's good that it's so. It's in every one of us to be wise. Find your heart and open up both your eyes. We can all know everything without ever knowing why. It's in every one of us, by and by.